This whole country just like my flock of sheep. We want to know what you intend to give away to the communists. He will bring destruction to our traditions. He looked in his heart and he thought in all humility how he'd like to try and change things. Rip off this city for a hundred grand? Yeah. It's, a, it's a groovy thing to do. I propose to demand from the House the immediate removal of the President of the United States. Well, I think it would be a waste if, like, the four folks in here who are in interracial relationships don't talk about their experiences in modern America with interracial relationships. Uh, you know, let's warm up. What's your experience, Nicole? <laughs> um, I, I guess I don't really, um, I can't pinpoint when um, I sort of realized that you know people had sort of value judgments about race growing up I just remember that I noticed it at some point um and I think from that point I've always been very um I don't know if self-conscious is the word but very aware of um my racial identity and it's because I'm the product of an interracial relationship my father is um, Norwegian, German, Swiss, Dutch, and English, so about as white as you get. And my mom is Indian, Singaporean, Iraqi, and Jewish, so about as not white as yeah. you get. Um, and I have always been sort of aware of the history of um, how complicated that was. Uh, you know, my dad is from a small town in Montana and grew up on a farm, and um, my mom grew up in Singapore. And uh, just even that they met is sort of um, a story in and of itself. But yeah, it's just, it's striking to me that from when that court case was settled to when my parents met was about a decade. And that I could very well not exist if uh, something like the Loving's experience hadn't happened and they hadn't been able to challenge it. Um, and so I've sort of, I've never, I don't know if there's a way for me not to have an interracial relationship because I'm so mixed. I don't think I'm ever going to find someone who <laughs> is either um, half, you know, of anything that I am and half of <laughs> anything else. And so I've, so, I've always been hyper aware of interracial relationships. So, and if this is uncomfortable, we can <laughs> skip. Do you have an example? Are you saying that? you became aware of it did something can you think of an event that um, happened i think it was um i can't remember what the topic of the essay was um but we were given some sort of you know take home write about your experience essay um and it had to do with uh gosh i really it's um, it was forever ago i think it was around like fifth or sixth grade and i remember thinking to myself about um pageants, beauty pageants, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't remember if it was uh, Miss USA or Miss World or which whichever one it was, um, but it was whichever, I think it's Miss World where they have everybody from di the different countries. Miss or Universe? That, Miss Universe, maybe. Yeah. Um, and thinking to myself that uh, Miss America never looked like me, that the ideal of American beauty, mm -hmm. I wasn't my skin tone it was either a white woman or a black woman mm -hmm. and those were the choices mm -hmm. and I looked more like Miss India or Miss Singapore 
And so it was, it was always interesting to me how nationality and racial identity didn't ever match up for me and that that was different from my peers. They didn't have those sort of things to deal with. And um, growing up dating, I, I never knew when I was attracted to someone if they were going to be attracted to me out of, um, fetish isn't the right word because we're kids, but mm-hmm. uh, I was always told that I'm exotically beautiful, mm-hmm. not that I'm beautiful. You know, and that sort of I hear resonates, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, I don't get that very often. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I never knew if when someone wasn't interested in me, if it's because they just weren't interested in me, or if there was something racially toned about that. So I don't know. It's just something that I'm mm, internally aware of mm-hmm. and hyper aware of sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't think I became aware of it until I guess I started, I don't know, started talking to my mom about like crushes that I had or whatever. Like, well, you grew I, up in a I, different background, yeah, a I, different place than we I grew did. up in LA. I didn't have white classmates until high school, really. I, I don't think I did. I can't recall. Patty Jimenez, shout out to Patty. Um, <laughs> hey, Patty. <laughs> She was white, but she was also half Mexican, I believe. And um, I don't know, you know, I remember I was telling my mom, like, ooh, there's this guy named Mario that I think is cute. And she was like, oh, what is he? And I'm like, I don't know, he's black and he's half white, half black. And I don't know, it was just like kind of, it was, I don't want to like paint my mom in any terrible light, but like, it was just like, you know there's this in Filipino culture there's just like in a lot of other cultures there's this emphasis on like being lighter skinned and and how that's more desirable and I I think my mom was just I remember I had a crush on Tyrese hardcore and I was like like, mom look at Tyrese and she was like "Mm, no you know like it was just not good um and I I feel terrible for saying that out loud sorry mom I love you Um, but it's just, yeah, I don't know. It it was just like my background, you know, I've, I've, I've dated a lot of different races and, um, I I don't know, looking back, my parents never really liked anyone except for Jacobs. They didn't like me. (laughs) And I don't think it's just because Jacob's white. I also think it's because Jacob is kind and wonderful and really nice and so supportive. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's always been kind of a said but not said thing about like an interracial relationship and even now like in my experiences sometimes I think that like white girls don't really like that I'm dating Jacob there there are some of some of people some people in our like kind of wider friend circle who have given me this sense that like they think they should be dating Jacob instead of me and I don't know if that's true or not if that's just an imagined thing or not but when you're flirting with him in front of my face like it's just like really uncomfortable (laughs) um like hardcore flirting and I'm just like oh this is so uncomfortable for me like I I don't know I've never had that experience in the supermarket where like people didn't think that we were together even though we were standing next to each other but there's just like these said but not said things that make me like hyper aware of Yes, we are we are in an interracial couple and some people might not like that, even in twenty seventeen. Even yeah. in liberal Seattle. Yes. Especially <laughs> in quote unquote liberal Seattle. Gentrifying like whoa. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say for my experience, I you know, I have two I have two two pieces to to think about here. One is if you don't know me, if you're a listener who has not seen me or whatever, I am very white. Um, I have freckles on my arms. Uh, my hair is more is reddish brown. Um, both my parents are white. Uh, my dad's side, there are Native American roots. Um, and I'm a registered Native American of Eastern Shawnee tribe. And that has been something that when I'm growing up has been at least a complicated there is definitely some complicated feelings in our family towards that because some members of my family are registered as members of the tribe and some of them are not and some of them feel comfortable taking the benefits that our tribe provides to us and some of them are not and that is something that I've had to kind of wrap my head around as a white person who will basically never suffer any sort of injustice as a result of how I look um, but I'm tied to this racial and cultural group that has suffered a lot of injustice mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, and the other thing is dating Karen. Um, Karen is the first non-white person I've dated within <laughs> more than one date. Um, and as a white person, I have now gotten to experience secondhand racism that I, I guess had long assumed would not come out. Stuff that I would never say or do, uh, I've discovered is there are people who are not uncomfortable just saying or doing whatever um, as sort of a, maybe a more low-key example, but, um, and for our anniversary, what was that, two years ago at the Ho Rainforest? Mm. About a year and a half, a year ago, something About like that. two years ago, yeah. Um, so we were camping, it was next to this place at Hot Springs, and we were at the Hot Springs, and this older white woman, um, who was next to us, you know, were, in basically a big hot tub, had told mm -hmm. Karen, like, oh, your skin's so nice, and at some point, having dated Karen long enough, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, this is her warming up to say something racist. And she totally <laughs> and she did. did. But I have now been with Karen long enough to know that if someone comments on how nice Karen's skin is or about her skin color that, that is a warm-up for basically well I'm not racist but let me get this let me get a compliment out of the way before I say something really prejudiced which I think was about how the Chinese believe the hot springs are very healing or whatever I don't know next, what it was you it's know an sequitur. yeah it was but it like something about being with Karen long enough had keyed me into like she is. This woman is warming up the pitch for something shitty. She's gonna say. Was, that, that, was that in a comment about what the Chinese believe about the hot springs? Yeah. So it was back to back. She's like, "Oh, your skin's so nice. Isn't it nice to be in these hot springs? Did you know the Chinese believe that this these they have healing powers?" And that loops whatever. completely back into what Nicole was saying earlier about how like racism is delivered subtly, and that's more often how we see it. It's just like this. Thing, it's the said but not said thing where you know she's trying to she's this woman that we met at the hot springs was exoticizing me and making a general maybe not informed at all like conclusion about a, a culture that she doesn't really know anything about maybe but maybe she does that. maybe that's what I'm what saying I mean that's what I'm belief. saying like she might she might have lived there and studied the culture for all I know. Yeah, we, but we don't know. It really came across as like, hey, she is saying something 
that she thinks that I need to listen to her talk about how important the healing powers in of water in Chinese culture is. And I'm like, what did you assume about me? Did you assume that I was Chinese? What do you think I am? Like, it, it's just so uncomfortable when that kind of thing happens. I think in her mind, as a white as a white middle aged woman, I think in her mind, she was actually trying to show that she wasn't racist. Exactly. Sure. That's what I was oh, say. I, I absolutely believe that. But you, I have now experienced that secondhand enough to know if somebody's first, like, it, it's these little things I'm starting to pick up on where it's like, if the comment is going to be about somebody's skin color, that's because, to me, as a white person, what I'm hearing in, in this is she noticed somebody's skin color is different than hers. She wants to make it clear that she's not going to say something negative, but she wants to, like, kind of lay the ground. I mean, the whole, that whole thought process is a problem, right? Oh, yeah, that's, yes. that's the thing. Why do you have to say anything? Why right, it was her discomfort with the situation. She was, she didn't know how to make small talk with yeah. someone who she wasn't familiar with of a different race. And it wasn't just that you were strangers. And more so, more, more than that, it's like, I'm used as a device for her to feel okay about her state and her progress and her journey of towards not being racist when honestly like everyone is a little bit racist we race exists in our culture like it pervades our culture in America so you know I just did not like I did not like this you know person talking to me about whatever cultures she may or may not have a deep knowledge about when like I'm just there trying to chill with Jacob like it was our anniversary and and yeah. now all of a sudden I'm like this vehicle for her to feel better about herself about race and I'm like you know what I didn't ask for this and you're foisting this upon me in this like eight foot pool of warm water this is <laughs> hella uncomfortable I'm out of here I mean I don't want to minimize if you felt slighted or offended by this woman but it's kind of like well the Lovings get arrested and thrown in jail for, for just being married and minding their own business. And you have to endure someone giving you a weird compliment and a non sequitur about the Chinese. It's, I think that I'm not trying to say that I'm like the Lovings at all. No, that's not what I was accusing But I think that my experiences are just as valid. I think the, the problem is that when people think about racism and their interactions with other people... Um, they think that unless they're doing something overtly prejudiced, that they're fine. They don't want to look around and sort of examine what larger complexities there are in terms of their interaction with people of a different race or society in general. Um, it's those power dynamics that are uncomfortable and hard to recognize. I mean, in terms of, I think if you ask most people of color growing up, um, some of them will have very overt sort of like, yeah, this real racist thing happened to me. And some of them will just sort of be like, yeah, like this was a, a smaller experience I had that was uncomfortable. And it might seem minimal relative to being arrested or being, you know, murdered or yeah. whatever. Or even having like a overt derogatory term used at them. But um, don't they collect? Yeah, but it's not even that they collect. It's that it's that it's the idea that that it's less um, powerful, um, you know, and, but when you think back to yourself, there aren't those same sort of interactions that someone could have with you. You know, there isn't that sort of weird, social, awkward, you know, trans transition that, that th this woman would have had with you if you were a stranger for her sitting in the hot springs. You, there isn't a, a white 
relative she experience would, to that. But I mean, if I, I've known people who've gone to Japan, for example, and say that the, the local Japanese seem like fascinated with them. Sure, and, and that's they comment and, on the color of their but skin. But this is a person in their own country being treated differently than other citizens in their own country. Yeah, which is slightly different from going to another culture intentionally. And I'll, I'll say for me, I'm not using this as an example of the most racist person I've ever met or something. Yeah, I've I'm definitely just, had more racist experiences. I'm just using this as an example of how dating somebody who's not white has exposed, at this point, has exposed me enough that I am starting to pick up on what is a lifetime of it. Like, I have no experience before dating Karen of what not being a white person would be like. And I'll never have that experience, truly. But I at least... I'm starting to build a sense for, hey, somebody's saying something that maybe I would have said a few years ago or starting conversation in a like socially awkward way that I'm now picking up on like, oh, that is not um, a friendly way to start small talk because it may seem, you know, I am sure that that, that lady was being friendly in her own mind. She was not doing this to make Karen feel uncomfortable or make me feel uncomfortable. But I am now being internalizing like, oh, this lady doesn't have that sense. She's never had the experience of like where that where that border is between appropriate and inappropriate, where the thing she's saying would feel feels comfortable for her, but would obviously like to me now feel is obviously uncomfortable. And God bless her for trying. <laughs> yeah, this you isn't know, a value judgment on her either. No, I don't know. Nobody's saying she's a bad. She'd be a great yeah. person or a terrible person. I'm Who just knows? saying my experience of that was like completely the opposite of what she was probably trying to get at like this you know for someone to say that like hey you didn't get arrested you didn't get murdered so you should be happy with what she said or you should be fine with it or let it like go over your head or over your brush the dirt off your shoulders or whatever like I just I think that that kind of experience is just like an example of many you know many other instances in my life where I just felt like completely singled out made to feel like I'm you know, like the, I, like I, involuntary spotlight being put on me. You know, I, I didn't ask for that. I didn't speak up about it. I, I didn't make, I didn't want to make an example of myself in that moment. And yet here I am, like the person, the thing to this woman that would help her feel a little bit better about her journey into dealing with. I don't know. You whatever. Were, you were default otherized. I was default otherized, and that happens more often today like in that kind of subtle sort of situation rather than like someone explicitly calling me like a little brown monkey or whatever. Yeah and those I think are harder situations to deal with because you if you come back to this woman and say that was kind of racist for you to she would say say what exactly did I say? Super defensive and say like I didn't say anything wrong like no I was I I would not you know and it's almost harder to deal with sort of um educate someone on mm-hmm. why that was harmful for right. me to hear. I mean, nobody's going to compliment me on my skin tone because Jacob, I, have am, a lovely skin tone. I am seen <laughs> as, I am default in this country. When people think, when white people think of what a, what skin color is, mine is in that range. So nobody's ever going to say I have nice skin tone or describe me as exotic uh, because I my skin tone does not register on white people's eyes including my own i mean i that is a self-describing when i see a group of people if i see a bunch of white people i'm it does not their race does not uh register for me 
And that is the thing that I am, I'm starting to pick up on is, I don't know about that lady. This is not an example of a, a super racist person we ran into, but that is that, that type of subtle racism or the type of thing that she, she's noticing something about Karen that otherwise is me. Yeah. And I, I have to jump in here and say that I recently went to this CLE. It's a continuing legal education thing that lawyers have to do. But anyway, it was all about um, microaggressions in the workplace. And if you want to know about the concrete ways that these types of subtle little you know, said but not said one-off things actually amount to like a tangible negative effect on people of color is that when people are hiring people, they want to hire people that they are comfortable with and they have this gut reaction comfort level with, which is like normally and usually based on skin tone and like similar backgrounds. And so when you otherize people, even in the small way, all the way up to like murdering them because they're not white, um, you're you're creating this negative effect on society as a like this negative institutional systemic effect of like people are getting passed up on jobs that they they really could potentially be qualified for because they they've been otherized and other otherizing people in our community is just well it's you know it's just one small comment here and there one small comment here and there but like that adds to seeing people as like different and not the same as and not good as and not enough as you so i thought but we just said we weren't making value judgments on these people making these subconscious things and now you're saying she thinks that you're a lesser person because of your skin color that seems like a value judgment to me i think i don't know i i, I might not i might not have that uh academic background for this i i would need to cite to the cle materials but the kind of widespread flippant one-off comment here and there that you think is okay and you think is fine you know whatever i'm not trying to say like who this woman was or was not but that kind of thinking that that kind of thing is okay in the aggregate is not okay yeah i mean i i mean that's where i'm I'm coming from this is being in a relationship with somebody who is not white has certainly changed my perspective on things and I will say that it has gotten much more complicated since the most recent election because some of that pressure is more constant. I don't know what things would be like in a world where Hillary Clinton was president because I just don't know if the constant discussions about like sort of that the racial pressure would be so high nationally. Because well, I don't have to go very far to see a racially charged story. I don't have to go very far. I can open up Twitter and see any sort of racism I would choose to experience from institutional to like white supremacists, white supremacists shooting guns at people. Like all of that is in front of me all the time. If I even try not, if I just don't avoid it. Um, And I do know that that has accelerated a, um, my experience on this and you know karen and i talk about this stuff a lot we we've disagree into, about we've this gotten stuff. into lots of fights about it it's true <laughs> it's true many many that you know that have uh i think helped me give a, get an understanding of where and karen's coming me from too. like i i our arguments and our I mean, we're both lawyers. We're always like having it really expressive conversations about 
different yeah. viewpoints, but it's helped me learn about. They're like, a little less, a little less terrible now. Yeah, but it's it like I'm like Jacob has learned about what it's like to be in my shoes. I've learned a little bit too about what it's like to be in Jacob's shoes. How hard it is sometimes to start this conversation with family members who may not have. I mean, here we are sitting in this podcasting room. Yeah, right we're doing now. it right now. <laughs> like you know, it, we sat we sat in the backyard and and talked about like articles we had read about race and mm-hmm. you know like it, it it can be difficult and uncomfortable to bring up these kinds of conversations with family and um i just learned that about i i learned that perspective from jacob too so like james i, I totally get where you're coming from like you know it's it's hard to say like this one white woman and all of the racism that she embodies but like it's her and it's all of the other white people out there who think that it's okay to make these kind of one-off sort of not so harmful but you know I, I'm having I have a sort of a, a complicated thought that I that is not clearly formulated so I, I have you know listening to you talk and uh, thinking about various things I've been having some sort of complicated thought about how it's easy for white people to um, look at a case like Loving, where it's really cut and dried, and people are saying extremely racist things like, God put us on different islands, and that's proof that we shouldn't mix together, versus a woman in a hot tub saying, you have really nice skin, and it's, you know, Chinese people, this or that. That's a much harder conversation to... It's much harder for a person who has not been exposed to that to to uh, pull the racism out of it, right? Because it's like, that's something I might do or say because I'm ignorant of the effects of racism, right? Well, I, I, I would say in 1950 or 1960, it's probably exactly the same. I mean, it, I don't want to make this these two situations analogous, but I mean, in 1960, there was no way Richard Loving was going to go to that judge and be like, well, actually, your your honor, that's not appropriate because the judge was like, no, I believe that. That is God's law or whatever. There's, there's no comfortable... There was never a time where that was a comfortable conversation to have with a person saying something racist. No, but, but there were... That he was perfectly comfortable saying it. He lived in a... The judge was perfectly right. comfortable with what he was saying because he lived in a culture where that was the... I'm going to say the presiding believe he lived mm-hmm. in a state that that made a law that said that it was illegal for white people to marry black people that wasn't true in every state it was true in the state in which that judge was practicing his right I'm, i guess i'm just saying that yeah i mean things have improved but that at that time that was considered the prevailing wisdom i'm not saying and that now things have the... improved that, my point wasn't that things have improved yeah. my point was that it's they're on the spectrum of racism <laughs> It's really easy to be against statements made by that judge. That's like if you feel that you're not racist, you could look at that and say, "See, I'm not racist. I don't agree with I don't that, what that it, guy is." Yeah, but if you're in the hot tub with that woman and you're a white person and you hear her say that to Karen, it's not going to register. Mm-hmm. And it, it's true, like what Deb is saying. Like it, that's like pointing out like a black spot in a white sheet. You know, it, it's very easy to be like, "That was racist," and that's what I'm against. But when it's something kind of like subtle and not really, not really overtly terrible, 
it's harder to be it's harder to say hey that was wrong you know it felt wrong to me because i i felt you know i felt the negative emotions from that interaction and maybe it's just it's harder to like what deb was saying it's harder to pull out the racism from that and point it out and say that was racist because it's it's less overt it's less i was also know. kind of thinking about the mentality of that woman she she probably thinks I'm not a racist and I'm proving it by saying the words. That right, I'm, saying, I'm doing right? something compliment. I'm saying a compliment. And, and the 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 difficulty of getting her from that position to actually understanding that what she is doing is a racist, that she is actually being a racist in that moment, it requires that she take an effort or be somehow pulled into another way of thinking or recognize some kind of, you know, she has to have a an epiphany or right. an experience that's or hard to do right it's something that doesn't happen to people so mm-hmm. the likelihood of her ever moving away from that is is really unlikely mm-hmm. i so we karen and i work with a, a, a trans woman um who i was having a conversation i'm making an analogy here unrelated by people put in a, a less powerful situation in society but one of the things she'd said to me when we were talking about what she's going through was basically what I what I want from my friends and the people I know is to just believe me. Whatever you're going to mm-hmm. say about, oh, did you think about this or whatever? Yeah, I've thought about it. All I'm saying is that when I tell you that I feel this way, to just go, okay, that is how you feel. And it's not even an issue of... Uh, accepting or or understanding necessarily but step one is just you're telling me this thing and you're my friend and so I'm just believe me when I tell you this that I've thought it through and this is how I am Mm -hmm. and I see analogies of that that I'm kind of building up to because I as I'm a white person I have said racist things I have made other people of other races feel uncomfortable in my life I've done plenty of things that is easy for a white person to do but one of the things that I'm kind of building with Karen is if Karen tells me like, hey, that made me feel uncomfortable, is to go like, okay, that made you feel uncomfortable and start from that point, which is actually very hard. Like that is mm-hmm. a complicated and difficult process to go through. But that is something that I, I think as somebody who's in a privileged and, and, and powerful place in society, that that is kind of the bare minimum I can do yeah. is when somebody says, this is how a thing has made me feel, or here's where I'm coming from, to start from the position of, okay. I think it is so easy to dismiss or kind of like, um, you know, like, what's what's another word? I mean, it's, it's, it's minimize. Yeah, yeah, it's dismiss or minimize. You know, the, it's natural, I think, for people to be like, oh, don't feel bad. Like, oh, don't, you know don't see your don't don't be upset you know maybe don't take that on yeah don't take that on like be happy and and be cool like i think it's natural for people to want their friends or people that they know to like not be sad but i think that it is so important um to just listen to the people who are saying like hey i that rubbed me the wrong way you know, like it, it, it's a harder, but I think it's a more worthy task to listen to people and think about like, oh, what, what about their, what about their, 
you know, what about that situation made them feel uncomfortable? Instead of starting from the position of like, that wasn't anything. Like, I, I know that I, one of my friends and who I also work with, you know, he's always saying like, you got to just let it roll off your shoulder and you got to, like, it's not a big deal. It's, it's like, you just got to let it slide. And it's just like, I'm voicing things that I think is very important and it is really difficult when my voicing things that I think is very important um, is just is just uh, cast aside as like, oh, there she is being dramatic again. I'm not being dramatic. I'm pointing something out that I think is a problem and that I think other people might think is a problem too. So it's just, it, it is hard because I think that the tendency in society when whether it's racism, sexism, whatever ism, like there's a whole hashtag me too going on um, in the internet right now. And like, it's asking people to just believe other people when they say they have been hurt. They've been hurt, they've been through trauma, they've been through something very hard and, and it's, it's, it would be nice to just not be treated as, you know, a problematic drama maker when when these things are voiced. I think part of that is people think they're being helpful, right? Because, sure. I mean, if you're, actually, uh, let me give a different, <laughs> let me not say, I was going to say if you're a white man, but I'm not a white man, so let's just say if you're a white woman and things have been easy for you and you have come up against some obstacles, but you've just said, well, I'm just going to push through this obstacle. And then another person comes to you and complains of something that is not within your experience, right? If a, a person of color says, this happened to me, someone was racist to me, and you give it the same, you approach it with the same uh, mindset that you approach with your own problems, mm -hmm. and you say, well, you should just, you know, ignore that. Um, but you're ignoring the fact that there's a difference between I had a challenge at work and maybe somebody didn't accept my ideas and I pushed through, but it wasn't, but there was no other context. It was just a challenge. And someone coming to you and saying, this is a systemic problem that I face every day and it's not based on any, anything that has any real meaning. I have to face up against this, even though it is completely illogical. It's not like, you know what I'm saying? Yep, I know exactly <laughs> what you're saying. Logic. Um, there's no there's no purpose behind the challenge that's being put in front of you except for this stupid idea that a person of color doesn't think right or whatever the mm -hmm. stupid idea they have is it's not a real challenge it's a fake challenge based on a bad idea I mean let me and again I'm I'm a white guy so this is coming from my my perspective but I, I see if a woman, if a pregnant woman came up to me and said, hey, I'm having really bad morning sickness. It's been really terrible. I would hope that my reaction would not be like, well, here's what I do when I feel sick. Because for whatever reason in our, in our world, um, as, a, as a guy, I know that I have no perspective on what it's like to be a pregnant woman. I would not presume to have a clue what to do in that situation or have any experience in it. And... I want to like use that as an example of as a as a white person who grew up in the suburbs who had very few to no uh, non-white friends. I'm basically an infant in terms of my experience with 
with issues of race. I mean, just generally. Living as a person of color or anything about it. And so I just try to come at it as like, I don't know anything. That's where I'm trying to get to is, I don't know anything. Whatever a person of color tells me about their experience, I have to take as from a position of a lot more knowledge than I do because they've lived with it. And I try and make that analogy in my head of like, well, I wouldn't presume to know what a pregnant woman was going through because that's something I've never experienced and probably never will be put in that position. <laughs> so, <laughs> so likewise, I'm not going to experience institutional or non-institutional racism except secondhand or throw those things and just try and take those experiences from other people at face value. Well, you can, I mean, there's empathy. Right? There, yes, there is. A, your... And I can understand a pregnant woman like, that sounds terrible, but I'm not going to be like, well, here's what I do. No. Oh, you should just, just jog it off. When I'm sick, I like to go for a quick run and have a cup of coffee. Like, no, I wouldn't do that because I don't know. I don't know what that means or what that experience and is like. And likewise, you can't just be, if a person of color is saying, this is the challenge I face at work daily, you can't just be like, well, you should talk to your boss directly about it because they will definitely listen. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, people are been shitty. There, been there, they do not. People so. are shitty to me at work, but it's a different experience than someone being racist to you at work because I'm just not in that same, like, I'm just not coming from that same place. I have a different, there's a different power structure in place. It's, it's all different. I'm still bad at it. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I think it's hard to have these conversations um, in the bigger picture. Uh, I mean, we already see how hard it is on a personal level, um, but for a multitude of reasons. One is, like we said, it's it's harder to categorize these, um, mm-hmm. um, this is probably not the best word for them, but these infractions, these racist infractions. Um, uh, but those are the ones that I think are the most important to deal with because they're so pervasive mm-hmm. um, and... Really? Yeah, I think because those are the ones that make um, the social structure the way it is. Mm-hmm. That they're they're just passively accepted and not even recognized. Do you think it's more important to focus on tiny things like that than like actual like hate crimes? Because hate like crimes that? you can legislate. I can say that is an action I recognize. Here is a legal remedy to it. Um, someone's unconscious bias because this is just the way the world is, is not something I can legislate. Not that people aren't trying. Well, but because because sometimes the only way to um, raise awareness of those internal issues is to make an external solution, you know, like with integrating school districts, with, you know, integrating, uh, you know, bus seats and diner counters and things like that. Um, that sometimes there is sort of a force. We we have to just force the progress because, you know, there, there's just there's so many issues and there's only so many ways to address them. And the problem is that the the defensiveness that happens with um, people who who feel like I'm not contributing to this. You know, like the woman you probably encountered, you know, that probably actually thinks that they're being more helpful, that they're being progressive about it. Um, How you start those conversations, I think, is super difficult because, again, there's just, I mean, I get defensive when people want to point out something that they think I'm doing wrong um, because I don't think I have any ill will in that moment. Mm -hmm. I'm not purposely trying to be, you know, a dick about something um, that I am unaware of. 
And so it's, especially when it's something so uh, charged Mm -hmm. and has such a steeped history, like a term of racism, that's very um, internalizing. People immediately sort of cringe at the idea that they could be categorized that way when they don't feel prejudice at all. Mm -hmm. And it's not about an overt sort of action. It's sort of um, a complicitness Mm -hmm. that you're just in this situation and it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect your daily life. So why would you be aware of it in order to, and it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to want to be proactive to change it. And then on the other side, for the people who do experience it, there's the um, emotional burden of trying to be the educator. You know, mm-hmm. not only do they have to process sort of um, their reaction to these circumstances, but then when, you know, they try and sort of bring it up, there's either the dismissal, the defensiveness, um, or just, it's just tiring. <laughs> you just don't want to talk about it yeah. anymore. So you I, don't want to be the educator for I everyone. I have an example of this from last week, and I don't know if this will be helpful or not unhelpful. It's not, it's not race-related. <clears throat> it was a Facebook post that was shared by a trans friend of mine, a gay couple, um, lesbian couple, was going to look at a site in Washington State, around here. Uh, they were going to look at a site where, to have their wedding because they had heard it was quite beautiful. And they loved it. Um, but when the owners realized, and they, the owners were were uh, enthusiastic at first, and they were mm-hmm. showing them around, but when they realized that it was a lesbian couple, they became cold, right? Mm. It was obvious that this mm-hmm. was not, you know, they went ahead and finished the tour, but they were not into it. And when the woman asked, is this going to be a problem? They said, we, we will let you have your wedding here because the law requires it, basically, mm. was their response. And so then there's, you know, various comments, people supporting this couple. They decided mm-hmm. we're not going to have our wedding here. And um, a man made a comment um, from his profile picture, a white man made a comment that was basically one of those, like, why would you want to have your wedding in a place where somebody doesn't want to, you know, like basically dismissing her being, her hurt mm-hmm. at this being something that she experienced. And then uh, the comment after that was, your privilege is showing. And then his comment in response to that was, I knew when I made this comment, someone would bring up the fact that I was white. But nobody brought up the fact that he was white. Mm-hmm. She just said he had privilege. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, privilege mm-hmm. is not just a white thing. That he is had, so true. He had gender privilege, basically. He never would have to work as a white cisgender male going to yeah. any wedding Unless venue. Unless he was gay, he's probably fine. Right. Yeah, privilege yeah. is not just about race, but it's about class, it's about gender, mm-hmm. it's about sexual orientation, it's a, it's about even like the generation that your family came here. Like there, there is there is privilege between a fifth generation Filipino person and a first generation Filipino person. There's, the privilege is just it's not just about race it's about everything it's about power structure and dynamic it's it's about the ability to say just go to a different place mm-hmm. and not understand because you've never experienced it not understand the hurt of the person who can't can't have a wedding in a mm-hmm. place that they think is beautiful mm-hmm. because of someone else's prejudice against them and in my journey of like getting closer to my parents as i get a little bit older i totally see that like I've got some first generation privilege, you know, compared to my parents who moved here in the 80s, you know, their, their way of dealing with all of the racism that they, they they still face every day in Los Angeles, um, you know, their, their way of looking at it was like, 
hey, you know, we just have to deal with it and we just have to go. We have to accept that this is the price we paid for moving to America is that we are going to be discriminated against. And um, sometimes when I was growing up, I was like, like, why aren't you like, I'm upset. Like, why are you telling me to not be upset? But like, that was one of their survival tools. Like, that was how they survived in America was like, you know, don't make, don't raise a scene. They didn't don't, have someone to complain to. Yeah, they did. Ha- they had no one to complain to. My my mom's parents turned their back on my family, <laughs> so we they we pretty much like not to have a bootstrap argument at all here. But like my parents, you know, they didn't really have much, and so whenever I complain about like someone at work, you know, this one attorney treated me this way, like you know, I just think about like my parents. My mom has probably faced so much racial and sexual discrimination in her career. My dad, you know, like there, there's so much more to privilege than just race. Like I'm more privileged than my parents are. I'm a lawyer. I went to law school. They, you know, my, my mom couldn't finish college. Um, my dad's, my dad's college education means nothing here in America. So it's just. I don't know, like you were saying with that that guy saying, oh, someone pointed out that I was white. Like, no, it's it's more than that. What, but what was weird is they didn't. That she yeah. didn't, didn't come up. That person white. just felt that it was about that. Yeah. Can, I, can I share a, a fa- another Facebook thing? I'm rolling my eyes at my <laughs> oh, Facebook. Facebook stuff. So I have, a, I have a friend from high school who um, is a Republican, but she has become a little bit confused since the election. She's not a Trump person. So I'm always, I'm watching her stuff on Facebook because her posts get a lot of comments from people on more the right side of the spectrum. And I get a good sense of kind of where people are. Um, So it's interesting. So I saw she'd commented on something that I looked at uh, and it was an article in response to the Harvey Weinstein and the the hashtag Me Too Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but it was an article about a, a journalist explaining her situation. The thing that had happened to her was she was at a dinner party with... She's out, out with her co-workers for dinner. Everybody left at the end of the night except one guy. So they're having now they're left alone having drinks and food together. And he says to her, like, you know, I'm, I, it's like, I've always been so sexually attracted to you. Something along those lines. Um, and she's really upset... She basically says, hey, it feels uncomfortable. She says, uh, okay, I'm, I'm going home now. Goes home. Uh, and the person po- posting this article, this, this guy was basically saying, like, I don't understand why she's upset. This is not sexual assault. This is not sexual harassment. He's just telling her he likes her. It's a compliment. I don't understand it. Please, could someone explain to me what the problem is here? And there's a, a jillion comments of his friends and, and people he knows a lot of them being women saying, here's why that, this made her feel uncomfortable because it was sexually suggestive and it was a coworker. So she's not in a position, she's in a position where she is not able to just like bail on this guy and leave. Um, and then mostly men, but a few women basically saying, I don't see what the problem is here or what do you want? Uh, how else are men going to ask women out on dates or yeah, this was an inappropriate thing to say, but he was just confused, basically. And I thought that that was another situation, kind of like what we're talking about, where I, I see as a as a white man, like 
I, I'm, to some extent, I get it, where the, there's these guys saying, like, well, I was just asking her out, or here's this was an awkward way to phrase it, and why is that upsetting? But on the other hand, I again, I'm like, if I just take it at face value that she felt uncomfortable, there'd be no situation where I'd want to ask somebody out where I would want them to feel like they were being taken advantage of or uncomfortable or put in a, a bad position. So, like, when I put those two things on a scale next to each other, I, like... You know, if you if if what you're doing is is making someone feel uncomfortable, that's not right. But I, I again, I, I think there's. I'm guessing he was hoping she reciprocated the feelings, and that it would not make her feel uncomfortable. Right, exactly. <laughs> like that he's he's hoping he would say this, and it would be fine. But you know, I, I I read that, and it's another situation where like if I just believe what she's saying, and I believe that she feels uncomfortable and awkward in this position where she is in a less powerful position because this is her coworker and she can't just never talk to this guy again. I see those parallels between something like a person says something racially charged that makes Karen or Nicole or anybody feel uncomfortable, but it's not, it's not coming from a place of malice. It's not, I'm not trying to guess the intent of the person behind it. It's just, it is a very difficult conversation or it's very hard to, to explain to someone like that woman in the hot tub why what she was saying was wrong when you know she doesn't know better but at the same time that doesn't excuse her behavior at this, you know i'm not looking for an excuse for her yeah. it's but just it's our, our modern discourse i think tries to uh, uh erase all dull degrees of difference about this so I mean, a story, I'll speak from my perspective. Like growing yeah. up, I learned about in school, and I mean, I'll, I'll say just as background, I grew up. I'll say mostly white suburbs, mm -hmm. various, very different parts of the country. Um, sure. But uh, you know, you learn you learn in school about about the civil rights movement, heroes like Martin Luther King um, Jr. and uh, and racists like you know uh, the Bull Connor or uh, the. Uh, David Duke, he's still around. Well, he's still uh, kicking around. I mean, I mean his story, when you're learning yeah. about the historical story of it, you know, Bull Connor, uh, 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 McGovern, the the uh, mm -hmm. governor in Alabama, the segregated schools. Um, you know, like people who like sicked the the police or turned fire hoses on on, on protesters, really overt acts. Yeah, those are racists. And then we 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 talk about this woman in the hot tub. She's also a racist, as if these are the same thing. I don't think that's what we're saying. Yeah, we're not saying that they're the same. I was saying, you, you are all saying that's the same thing, but that's the way our sort of discourse treats these things. That's, yeah, that would, that's problematic, if true. Um, I mean, because you, with the woman in the hot tub, you have a chance of, of maybe something happening to her where she says, oh, wait a minute, I... Let me think I this through. Right, because she's, tr she doesn't think she's a racist, and she's actually think she may be doing something positive she's actually trying to reach out in some way whereas turning fire hoses on small children you're never going to make any headway with that guy mm -hmm. um look i don't know if that lady in the hot tub's a racist but i know yeah. she did something inappropriate she did something that made someone uncomfortable and that's not okay and like I, it's it's not a and i think that it would be unfair to say hey you know you're not getting a hose turned on you you're not you're not being like viciously attacked by someone, so you should be fine with what's happening. Like, I think that is just, you, I think that, I don't know, in these workshops that I've gone to that talk about like racial injustice and, and all that, you know, 
there's an emphasis on like intent versus impact and even if you even if you were well-meaning in what you were saying like the impact of it is what you should also focus on like the impact and also too the impact of getting a fire hose turned on you versus the impact of just you know feeling really uncomfortable in a very intimate setting with a stranger that you don't know at all um like that i i wasn't physically hurt i you know i i mean we 15 minutes later i was we went to yeah we went to a different place in that area and it was okay but like you you just have to think about like they're even though they're not the same there's it doesn't mean that they're harm they're not harm one is not harmful and one is harmful it's it's like these are it's not as easy as black and white well it's not this so it might as well be that like it's it's this whole thing of like because of this because of the history of this country and because of just human nature in general like that is way more complex than like well if it's not that then you should be okay with it i have i have a maybe a different example which goes more to the sexual um harassment thing but it is i I somehow this it is the same um so i used to work with a man who would wink at me right Hmm. but what the wink meant was that he that my my he wouldn't wink at a guy right no he would only wink at girls which meant all girls were the same hey well women girls whatever all all the female all the female workers there were the same and none of them were they were all worthy of a wink (laughs) and the wink is like that's what you do to a child right you wink at children because i don't i don't know that's kind of what a wink is when you wink at someone it somehow diminishes their their from my perspective, that's yeah. A well, I want to know your perspective more okay. than what you I think. Mean, it's it's you know. Well, well my pers- my perspective on him was I completely lost respect for him. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, you. I can see in your mind that you don't know what you've got here. This mm-hmm. is a this is an extremely valuable resource here, and you're diminishing me. Mm-hmm. Or I can see that you are n- never going to give me the chances, mm-hmm. or ever have the respect for the. Or my opinion on a thing, mm-hmm. which didn't matter, didn't affect me, didn't affect my career or anything like that. But it was like, I, it's that sort of act. It's it's a small thing that a person mm-hmm. does that shows what their perspective mm-hmm. is on a huge group of people. They're expressing and, something, and he's expressing something that he's expressing something to you about how women and men are different, and, and it's a negative. whatever it is i've got to say i mean i've been put in a similar but different position i had a supervising attorney who was an older white male uh proposition me sexually almost every day in my very first uh job as a as a lawyer and it was it was incredibly traumatic and it was just i i had no clue what to do because i said well this is one of my this is my first job as a lawyer this is the beginning of my career should i just put up with it should i should I talk about it? I don't know, but it, it really, you know, he. It started off with just this kind of like harmful, sort of playful, you know. Hey, um, one of the other law students who had the, who had a position at this place, he he was given a discreet legal task, and I was given the task of mixing his food in the microwave, and uh, and I was supposed to be happy with that, and um, it's just you know it started off that way, and it grew and it grew and it grew. 
until finally he said that I needed to go with him to a motel room where all the prostitutes go with all their johns to have sex. And I, I knew that I just, <laughs> this workplace was so toxic and it really revealed to me how, you know, what this person thought of, like what this person's um, idea of a power dynamic and, and everything in the workplace was. It was just so, um, I lost respect for him, but I was in this position of like, I'm just starting out in my career. I, um, I don't know who to turn to or what to say. And uh, I, I'm scared that if I speak out, that it will ruin completely ruin my career as an attorney. Uh, he, it's it's just I don't know whether it's racism or sexism. It's just when it when it's even just the seemingly harmless comments, they can really add up to something that you know it, it opens the door. It can open the door to so much more, and it's it's. I lost respect for him, but I had to stay and stick with this position until I finally told um, one of the program directors about this. And uh, it was just terrible. It's, it's a terrible situation to be in. Yeah. Well, that's the problem with the this whole discussion is trying to um, get people to recognize mm-hmm. the smaller things and acknowledge mm-hmm. their impact because it is easy to say, I see a fire hose turned on someone. That is racism. Mm-hmm. It's less easy to say, oh, this woman made a comment. I see the racism. I understand the experience. It's such a disconnect that it's harder to get that validation. But like from your story, if you had told someone, you know, oh, I just got this job and my boss keeps making me warm up his food, people might not recognize that as a gender imbalance as an issue. Okay, and they, it, they definitely would not, I correct. would say. And, and you might immediately, because you've had this experience, recognize where this is going and where it stems from. And they might not understand the issue until you get to the experience of, he wanted me to go to a hotel room with him. And then someone would could pinpoint and say, yes, there mm-hmm. is harassment. And it's, it's getting people to understand that when you've had that experience perpetually mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout your life, that you recognize it in those minor infraction areas, right. that it, yeah, it resonates it. with you. It's a calm like this, <laughs> yes. and you recognize it down here. You're down here. The, the minor infractions the makes, uh, like what Nicole was saying earlier, like they're so part of the American fabric that like these little minor infractions here and there, they're like the threads that keep this like, American fabric so strong like even just thinking about like literal traffic infractions that people have that that eventually gets their license suspended that eventually prevents them from from traveling to their job that they need that they need to provide for their family it it causes them to have to take the bus and I I love the bus too but it's difficult (laughs) it is difficult when your license gets suspended because you can't pay a fine and then your whole life is just like you're at that much more of a disadvantage. The tiny infractions really, I get so heated up about this, but the tiny yeah. infractions amount to so much and like to, to act like they don't, like when, when, I, when I hear like, you know, sometimes it's a prosecutor, sometimes it's someone else. Like when I hear that like the minor infractions, like, oh, it's just a traffic ticket or whatever, like that kind of thing is just like, no, it's not. It's this person's livelihood. It's this entire person's life. Like you're precluding them from the, from the possibility of success when you just do little things here and there, but 
in the aggregate, it just means so much. Because a speeding, a speeding ticket to someone who socially has more power than that person who might be wealthier, mm-hmm. um, it is a, sh- it's, yeah. it's a shrug. It's it doesn't matter. But pay it in terms off, of, get a lawyer. Yeah, but it's in terms fine. of power imbalance for someone where they're in poverty and they get that infraction, it mm-hmm. has a different impact. So mm-hmm. if you told that story to someone who had never had that experience, mm-hmm. who had never had to struggle paycheck to paycheck to get mm-hmm. by, they don't recognize it mm-hmm. as a big deal. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it is just an experience thing, and it's how do you relay a power imbalance when you've never really had that experience. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll say, and James, back me up if this has been your experience as well, but like as a guy, and I think particu- particularly maybe as a, as a white man, like our... Like, I don't want to say gender stereotype, but the, the gender thing that we, we build up with is you should be logical. You look at problem mecha- problems mechanically, and that makes certain issues, I think, I, I, I'll say for myself, that it, it puts certain issues like the ones you're describing as, well, if it were me, here's what I'd do. I'd go tell my boss. I'd go complain to a higher up. There's a mechanical solution to these problems you're seeing. And there's also, I, I sometimes see like, there's like a spectrum of, of things on a scale of one to 10. If it's less than a four, what I would do is tell somebody else or, or write it down or, or whatever it is. And I think that there is an expectation built up in, in men in, in our society to look at problems that way because that is an expectation. But <laughs> I was making a face. I don't know what that face means. I just had a, well, you know, I... I, I know was, you're very logical. I, I haven't always been very logical. <laughs> sure. That was a, an adapt, that's an adaptation sure. to the line of work that I was in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just remembering technical. there was a, there was a, uh, the adaptation was to remove all emotion mm-hmm. because the, the line of work that I was in, it, emotional women, and I... I'm guilty of this as well. When I would see a woman making decisions based on her emotions, and I have a very specific woman in mind who is, who has been very successful, I didn't respect that. And I suspect it's because what I respected was the way that men did things, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was what I was, you know, that was how I was uh, formed, I would guess. Um, so I adopted logic. It was given to me, and I was very good at it. Sure. And I was, what I was remembering was a phone call that I had with two guys from the South who were having a problem with their software, and I was solving their problem in a very logical way, and one of them literally said, I wish my wife was as logical as oh, you. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, where, where I was going with this is I think that part of this is that as, as guys, we are conditioned to handle problems or see problems in a logical way. And I also think that nerdy guys and technical-minded guys, it's it's even more so, where we see experiences of uh, women and people of color and even other men where they feel uncomfortable by a situation or something is said to them that makes them feel uncomfortable. And the obvious solution for us is to handle it in, a, in the logical and mechanical way of, well... Go, go tell your superior or just let it roll off your back because that's what we do. Go tell the research. Here's lady. a practical solution <laughs> to this problem. And I think that that is minimizing. And I think that that also at the same time is, is a conditioned response because 
emotional responses are very undervalued for men. Right. I think we live in a culture that that is dominated by the male approach and if you it, and does not value other approaches to problems. Like and I'm guilty of it myself in my sure. own life of not having respect for women because they took an emotional response even though they were successful with that approach. It was like I don't like all this emotion in things. Get that emotion out of there because that's going to cause problems. I'm, I'm curious, James, you've yeah. had but this isn't, isn't part of the point that we uh, we don't want to view it as there being a male approach to things and a female approach to things? That's what we want. I mean, yeah. I would say so. so but it I, turns out that, that a logical, mechanical approach to problems works out better, then we should just teach, we should just try to, as we've been apparently inculcated mm-hmm. to, to treat these things to make that the experience for everybody. I don't know, I, but I, I'm saying my perspective is that, I, mean, I would say, from my perspective, that is an easy trap for me to fall into, which is if I see, a, you know, in law school, a female law student crying, that in my mind, I like, I want a drama queen, you know, that she is responding to something that happened to her in a illogical and overdramatic way, even if I don't know. And I, I know that in my heart that, that is a, there's a part of me that will fall on that trap. And I can only, like, and I guess my theory on this is that that is a learned response. Not necessarily a practical one, because I don't know what, you know, I can tell you from experience, I don't know what happened to her. Maybe if something terrible happened to me, I'd cry too. Like, I don't know. But I know that my default position, the first thing I'm going to go to is that built-in, well, if she's crying that's ridiculous because I'd never cry in that situation. No, but you're saying you don't even know what the situation is. Right. That's exactly it. So I know from, and because of that, I know for myself that this is a, a, I mean, in, in a way, illogical response to me. I just know what my default is going to be, which is like, well, there's nothing worth crying about, even if I don't know. It is that, that you know, uh, biased perspective. And I, I, I want to say that that is because I'm a guy and, and to some extent I've been kind of built up that way. Well, something that I want to point out is that um, I think that a lot of the way that a lot of the way that a lot of um, men, I suppose, react to things is it they react in a way that is that they think is logical, but it's coming from a place of like fear and maybe like fear of power being taken away or fear of them being uh, or insecurity of of them being undermined and it, you know like this whole idea that logic and emotion are are able to be separated or you know are two different things like i just don't see that i think that i i, I don't believe in that I, I think that logic and emotion are are two parts to you know two sides of the same coin or whatever american fraser is like i think <laughs> i think that they're sure. they're, they're two they're, you you can't separate that and to to act like you know, oh, you know, I'm the logical one and, and you're the emotional one is, is just so wrong because be, even if you're saying, even if you're trying to portray that, like, you're only thinking about things in a logical way and therefore you're not emotional or whatever, like, there's still some emotion behind that. I mean, I would agree with you, but I would also say that if I had to, like, imagine, well, the stereotypical man-woman-husband-wife relationship, which one's the logical one and which one's the emotional one, I know that the man would be the logical one and the woman would be the emotional one. Even if that's not true, I just know what 
I've been conditioned to believe, and I know that I fall into that stereotype myself. I, I clear. I mean, I'm just have to strongly disagree because I think clearly emotion and, and logic can be separated. I mean, I can demonstrate with logic and proofs why the Pythagorean theorem is true. I can't feel it to be true or feel it to be another way and have that be just as valid as the logic that demonstrates that it's true, right? But that's not a human interaction. So what if you try to put that into a place where, let's say for the example that I used where they, where my logic was appreciated, sure. was not figuring out the Pythagorean theorem, but it was a complex interaction where I had to get people to agree with me about things that I was telling them about a thing that they were experiencing. They were having a problem with a piece of software, right? They were trying to accomplish a goal. And my, my job was to get them to believe what I was saying so that they would do the things that I wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that by using certain kinds of language and speaking to them in a certain kind of way that made them confident in what I was saying despite the fact that I was a woman, right? And that is a real thing because there were other people who worked on my team who had a different kind of, just the tone of voice was different. Right? So women with a higher pitched voice that was a little more childlike in the ears of the people who were listening to them, they had a way more difficult time getting people to, to follow their instructions. They would just literally not follow. Um, whereas I could, for whatever reason, I had a convincing tone, my voice was low enough, I used language that they could, you know, that they could accept I must have been at least feminine enough that they weren't jarred by the fact that I was a woman giving them instructions, but all, but I wasn't too manly, you know? Mm -hmm. I was striking just the right tone that I could be very successful at getting men to do what I was telling them to do mm -hmm. long distance over a phone call. I mean, I agree with you, Jay. Like, I agree with you about, hey, there is a logical solution to this, this issue. I think that what I'm trying to say is that and, and again, I assume that this is because I'm a man conditioned this way, that I use that same strategy when dealing with emotional and interpersonal issues where I okay. know that what I'm going to fall back on is, well, what would be the logical solution to this? And the more like and the more time I spend with it, the less I feel confident that a logical solution is the way to solve these problems, or think, that there is that way. I think that humans, like, if you just use logic to appeal to another human, you are forgetting the fact that there is more to a human than just logic. And to say that logic is the only way to solve a problem is just, like, denying half of your human existence. I mean, I, mean, I, I majored in philosophy in, in, in college, and so the, like Nietzsche would have a lot to say about this too. But you know, the, the, there's just there's just like to to deny to to put down the emotional side and and think of that as lesser than is to just completely I don't know to not appreciate the power that like appealing to the emotional response in another human that there's so much power there. I mean, like in law school, we all learned that the, the successful litigator is a litigator who can tell a story, who can bring that narrative that will like pull at the heartstrings. It doesn't like we saw it in the OJ Simpson. Like if we, what? we, if you saw that special on Netflix, like with Marsha Clark, you know, like she appealed to the logic of everything, but it was, it was Johnny Cochran's <laughs> narrative that just like pulled at the heartstrings of people and like reined in the the social um, 
tension that was prevalent at that time in LA. My parents were were young parents at that time in Los Angeles during the LA riots. And like there was just so much going on during that time. And if you can if you appeal to the emotional side as well as the logical side, then I think that's what like that's what is a good mm-hmm. communication skill. If you appeal only to one side, then it's just like halfway there. That's an interesting example, though, because in the O.J. Simpson trial, the uh, prosecution was trying to use logic to demonstrate what is probably the truth, which is that O.J. Simpson was a murderer. True. And Johnny Cochran's narrative convinced people of a lie, which that is his Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yeah. I know, and so that's, well, a, I mean, like, if we were taught, if this was a podcast about, like, that show, we, we could get into it. <laughs> you know, but, like, that, that's the whole, like, he was a successful litigator in that scenario. He won that case. And, yeah, you know, OJ, a lot of people think he's a murderer, but, like, that narrative that that appeal to that that ability to not put down that that emotional side of the the situation and to appreciate it instead that's that's what you know was so powerful well it's not it's not even that one strategy is more successful than the other and one should be valued more than the other it is the idea that they are so because of which gender they're associated mm-hmm. with. That is where it's problematic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you see the, and it's hard to translate that. It's hard to sort of say, someone isn't taking me seriously because of my gender and get a response, oh, well, have you tried, you know, approaching this less emotionally or Have you tried asking him not right. to do that? <laughs> yeah. and, and you can see it um, in other ways and it's, it's again it's about getting people to understand the experience when they haven't had it and there was mm-hmm. an article that came out a couple I think it was a couple of years ago might be more recent than that about co-workers who had a, the same job and one was a man and one was a woman and the woman wasn't getting as good of reviews back from the clients that they dealt with and the man one day realized uh, had gotten some email correspondence. That's how they corresponded with their clients um, that were sort of hostile all of a sudden, and they weren't taking his advice and they weren't listening to suggestions. And he realized that he had accidentally used her email signature, mm. and so they decided to do an experiment where they would switch email signatures for mm-hmm. I don't know how long it was, but it was for a good amount of time, and. Uh, suddenly all of the clients that she interacted with when she had his signature were very responsive to her and um, were listening to her advice and he was getting the opposite and he Mm -hmm. was sort of getting all this pushback and they took it to their supervisor and said hey this is what the experience we just had and the supervisor completely dismissed it and Mm -hmm. sort of was like nope she's still getting bad reviews she's just probably not as good Mm -hmm. so it's about one recognizing (laughs) the experience and sort of these underlying assumptions and I'm sure the clients themselves would have never thought they were being sexist they wouldn't even have recognized Mm -hmm. in themselves that they were responding a different way and so that's that's the larger issues how do you get people to recognize a situation they've never been a part of Mm -hmm. because you know and if we take it back to the Facebook post that Deb had read um, if if that venue had had a sign that said no gays we don't do gay weddings Everyone recognizes that immediately yeah, as discrimination. That's <laughs> there is legislation that says <laughs> they cannot do that. But when they do something more subtle, mm-hmm. when they find out on a tour that it's going to be a wedding for lesbians and their demeanor changes, and the, if you know the brides uh, had tried to 
tell this story to someone and relay their experience, I'm sure they would have gotten a lot of pushback. Like, well, how do you know that's why they weren't as excited about it? Maybe they were tired that day or maybe you were your, you know, their 10th tour of the day. And, you know, it's sort of getting people to recognize an experience they haven't had. And again, how do you, how do you legislate against that sort of attitude? You know, the whole point of that legislation is to avoid discrimination, is to make sure that people have equal treatment. Now, you can say, okay, well, they're still allowed to legally go to that venue, but if the people who own the venue aren't enthusiastically presenting them with a package the way they would a straight couple, mm-hmm. are they still getting the same service? Mm-hmm. Has the legislation gotten its intent? You know, have They've still been discriminated against, mm-hmm. and that's what's hard to explain to people when they say, like, well, just go somewhere else. Like, mm-hmm. well, then the law hasn't done its job. Yeah, it's, I was still discriminated against. It's I am the one who has to make the let accommodation. Me ask, let me ask you a question. So if, if a law could be, could be uh, crafted to your satisfaction, that would make it illegal for these people to give this, um, to give this service with insufficient enthusiasm, would you support such a law? I, I don't know if it even needs to go to that place. It's more about getting people to recognize that discrimination isn't just the overt, you can't have your wedding here. That there are levels and they're just as troubling. They so result in the same thing. We're kind of talking about two different things. You can't make someone be enthusiastic about a thing that they hate, mm-hmm. right? Um, you can't make a law that makes people enthusiastic about something they disagree with. Well, you could. It'd just be a horrible law. Right, mm-hmm. it would be very hard to execute. But I think that the... The point is that people who, is getting people to understand that that lack of enthusiasm is prejudice and it affects people. It's not that we can change those people's behavior, it's that people who, who want to care need to understand that, that, that that's not something just to be dismissed, that the hurt that the person mm-hmm. feels when that happens mm-hmm. is a problem. and. Instead of saying, well, just go to another venue, you should be saying, I'm sorry that happened to you. I can't, nobody can fix that that happened. But instead of dismissing the pain of that, that bride who, wanted to, who just experienced prejudice and say, go to a different place, which is kind of what Jacob was speaking to with the logical approach is just go somewhere else, mm-hmm. is to acknowledge that it's painful to have someone say to you, your lifestyle is abhorrent to me. You're in a position where you can't go to any place you want to. You can only go to some places if you want to get the full enjoyment. Right. I mean, the reason that I, I, I brought up this sort of logical, in my head, reading the Facebook <laughs> posts about my friend, all this stuff, I'm trying to get in the mindset of like, these guys are reading this article where somebody feels very uncomfortable by something their male coworker has said. But they also, at the same time, are like, this is not the same. These two things are different, or they're, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do as a man in this situation. I'm trying to find myself in a place where I can understand the people who don't understand that article but not agree with them. And, and my explanation, my hypothesis for this is about how, as a, as a man, you know, I have been conditioned to see problems in a certain way and that... I will sometimes use this sort of logical solution in situations where it's not helpful. And I want to try and tie that back into the movies we watched, to these issues of, of racial inequality, which is the, the same situation with the woman in the hot tub where 
I don't know what her intent was. She's probably a nice lady. Like, I don't know. And I don't know why she said what she did. She'd probably consider herself an ally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she may very well. And I'm not trying to say she was a terrible person. Because I don't know. She's a terrible person. She's a great person. Who knows? I just know this one interaction I I had with her. Her actions had an impact. Mm -hmm. But I do want to say that my initial inclination from a white male perspective is to apply what solutions worked for me in my life to this problem, which I have found are not adequate. Mm -hmm. My solutions to these problems, my experience with race is almost none. And my experience with, you know, gender discrimination is almost done. So I have very little to add. I have very little solutions to add because I just don't know very much. Right. And you end up with a feeling of futility, right? So Sometimes. I, I look at these things happening, and I, I'm doing my best to understand them because I... A couple of things. Uh, three things. <laughs> oh, <One>. okay. Four <laughs> things. You. I'm going to say three things. One, yeah, let's hear it. Uh, the woman in the hot tub. That was like two years ago. Yeah. And I, had, I said something about, you know, it would, take a, it would take an epiphany or some kind of event. Well, the election of Donald Trump was that event. For hey, maybe that lady's changed it too. We don't There's know her. A lot of people, I think, that woke them up to the fact that the gradual uh, elimination of racism, that's not happening. Uh, and Paul Robeson, actually, I, I have been reading his book, uh, Here I Stand, and he has one chapter about uh, basically arguing against gradualism, which is a thing that has been argued for, you know, gradually let things change. Mm-hmm. And his argument was, no, it needs to change now. Mm-hmm. Um, that woman in the hot tub was, until maybe until the election of Donald Trump, a lot of people were in this gradualism mm-hmm. mindset. I don't know who she voted for. No, she voted for Jill Stein. Let's forget her. Just a lot of people, a lot of white people are like, <laughs> yeah. things are getting better. It's fine. And then this happened, and they had to recognize, oh, it's not fine. Things haven't got it as much better as I thought. Because look at these millions of people who are still in this terrible mindset. So that's one. So you have. That was one of the things. Sure, what's number what two? What were the other two? Coming up uh, number two. Oh, so, you know, I said I used logic. I had learned logic as a tool. Sure. Prior to using logic as a tool, I was an instinct, almost 100% instinct-based, right? So what what I was doing on the phone, I was not using logic. I had an instinctual, I had an instinctual idea about what the problem was, and then I would apply logic that other people could understand in order to convince them that my instinct was correct, right? <laughs> sure. and, then I, and I would do tests to prove it. But it, it wasn't just logic. It was, my instinct tells me that this is the source of your problem. Now I'm going to use logic to prove my theory, uh, which is, you know, how scientists do things, I it's guess. That's also how lawyers do it. We just yeah. come up with a conclusion and we figure out how and to argue for it. Let me but, find a case that fits that. <laughs> yeah, let's see what we can do. Right. So, I mean, that it, it wasn't that I was an expert user of logic I was mm-hmm. an ex- I used logic as a tool to prove people that I, what I thought was true was true yeah um, so there was still an emotional base to it mm-hmm. but I just learned this new tool that I could use to convince people that I was that what I told them was true and they yeah. believed me and it worked on that one guy apparently it worked on I was very good at <laughs> technical support for that reason because I could yeah. really convince people that what I was saying was true um, and then they felt good. Yeah, that's all they want. I can't remember what the third thing was. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. I asked any questions. What now? The third thing was Karen Rules. Oh, was it Karen Rules? <laughs> yes. <laughs> hmm. 
Well, if we can sort of, I don't know if advice is the right word, but sure, information. Let's hear it. You can throw some, <laughs> some advice out there. You know, if there are people out there who are listening to this, um, who are sort of like, well, what do I do? Like, what do we do, Nicole? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I want to be better, or I don't think, I don't know if I'm one of the people that you might have had an experience with. You know, I, I think that in my daily life, I'm respectful to people, and I try to be aware, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, how do you have a conversation with them? How do you bring it up? And I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to fix <laughs> racial tensions in America, you know, Nobel Prize, prize for me. Um, but I do think the, the recurring theme that we've all come back to and is... Um, conveniently in current events is just believe just listen and and believe don't take Mm -hmm. the first step of trying to fix anything and Mm -hmm. trying to respond and trying to soothe the issue when it's Mm -hmm. when it's brought up to you just be receptive to it just start there because that's a huge huge step towards everything else just starting because then you can start to recognize it yourself like the experience you've had Jacob just Mm -hmm. being open to seeing those other experiences is, is, is a huge first step, I think. I support Nicole's views 100%. <laughs> and I also love Nicole. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't have anything more to add to that. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> I would say my only advice to other white guys out there who would, who'd like to broaden their horizons is find something you're already interested in and seek out other voices. I love science fiction and fantasy novels so i've been reading science fiction and fantasy novels from people of color writers who i have never read before and i like to think that they provide a perspective using going basically going into my comfort zone but finding a perspective outside of it has been has been a good way to to kind of expand things a little bit i i I say that's a very easy way to start guys want to do plugs do you guys have anything else you want to you want to say before we move on to the next section what's the next section cocktails probably cocktails do you have any racial experiences you want to talk about yeah what do you want to get yeah well we didn't uh, really talk about your experience um i mean i guess i'll I'll admit um dating nicole is my first uh, experience with with any interracial dating um I'll, I don't know if I should be embarrassed to admit this, but I don't think it really has changed my perspective on relationships or interracial relationships. Uh, Nicole definitely brings a different experience that I'm not uh, acclimated to, and I very much value um, getting to hear from uh, from her life. But, um, I mean, my, my perspective has always been sort of what I think we all want is to have a world where these things are not remarkable. They're not seen as anything different or mm-hmm. otherly or, or remarkable in any way. And so uh, personally, for the most part, I, I try to enact that by not treating it differently and not thinking of it as something remarkable, mm-hmm. you know? I think we've been pretty lucky in our relationship. I don't think I can think of an example when we've been... Uh, out together and felt any hostility. I know that um, in terms of the interpersonal groups that we have, the people that we surround ourselves with, I don't think it's ever been something to come up with. So I don't think he's ever had to. (laughs) And I completely understand. I would definitely have to take a different tact if people were throwing bricks through our windows. (laughs) It could happen. We don't know. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
But I know for us, one experience that we had that was sort of surprising to him, and I think he probably, and maybe justifiably felt a little defensive about, was um, me meeting his parents for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, you know, it was above the sort of like new girlfriend jitters. And it was sort of like, he was like, what, what did you think was going to happen? You know, he's like, did you think my parents would be racist? And I was like, I don't know. I just don't know if they're going to be. And he You've was met like, racist don't... people before. Right. So, and yeah. he was like, don't you think, like, I would have known? And I said, well, have you ever dated a not white girl? You know, like, what has there been the circumstance where it could have come up? You know, and so it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure you don't think your parents are racist. And they're not. They're lovely people. But it's, you know, it's something that I was hyper well, Watching aware Get Out of. before that trip is that's, definitely a mistake. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's something that I was hyper aware of and sort of was hard to translate to him. Like, it's, again, not a value judgment on, like, your parents or who they are. It's just something I am nervous about. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm walking into. Right. But it... it... You know, and I understand that. I, I can I can even see why you why you feel that way. It's just um, when it comes to how do you how do you get to a place where people don't feel that way? It's just kind of like murmur, and, and there's no solution. So basically, unless you are going to like have a violent revolution and set up some sort of totalitarian regime where you to control what people think, isn't your only answer kind of gradualism to let people come around in their own time? But gradualism. Seem when people talk about gradualism, they are very, being very passive. It's a very like this will just happen thing, and mm. without acknowledging what the steps are, and that there even is these sort of like we've been talking about these active uh, steps these, that they can these take. infractions. That if you're not even recognizing those sort of smaller things, how do you ever get? the large things how do you fix this eventually there isn't any actual movement that was also one of the primary arguments uh, in uh, one of the primary i don't movements or whatever when they in the idea of abolishing slavery one of this one of the stronger groups was this will just gradually go away so we don't have to do anything about it right that's what gradualism is we just wait for things to change and they will change the young over time. People are will cool, eventually, old people are bad. Eventually everyone will be a saint and everyone will love each other and we won't have this problem anymore. Well, that has never proven to be true. And also, even if it were true, <laughs> who who is suffering in the meantime? Yeah. Who's, yep. who's giving up something so that nobody else has to do any work to push it along? Mm. Who Who's actually, you know, it's not to bring this to Game of Thrones or anything, which is a great show, but, you know, <laughs> In, in the right. season where <laughs> they were talking about the slavery marine and Tyrion tries to make the agreement with the slave masters and says, okay, you can have slavery for seven more years and then, you know, that'll give you time to sort of work it out of your economic structure and your social structure. And he thinks he's giving this perfectly reasonable, gradual way of altering society. And the previous slaves then turn to him and say, I don't want to be a slave for one more day. Like, that is, I'm the one who has to give that up for Those the next seven, seven years. Those seven years are brutal yeah. for the slaves. So, again, not to make it as extreme as slavery, but it's that kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. who are you asking to put their comfort on hold so that someone else doesn't have to make a change? But it's different. It's, it's much different from slavery. Like, slavery is an institution that has to be backed up by, like, laws and, like, governmental structures, which are, by their nature... To some extent, malleable. But when you when you talk about the like the 
the the inclinations that like lie in the heart of of every person that even as we were talking about the person in the hot tub maybe even they don't even know about like that that's there is no solution to that well that's why it's more complicated but not acknowledging it and not addressing it and saying it'll gradually go away is inaccurate because how do you how does it ever gradually go away if it's not even being acknowledged and once you pointed out that hey that made me uncomfortable or that comment might make someone in my similar position feel uncomfortable like what what why is it so hard to make that small maybe it's not so small of a change but why is it so hard to make that change for somebody when like they know that the impact of them not making that change in their in their par- in their like worldview or their paradigm or whatever like will cause hurt to somebody. Well, I mean, in the case of the person in the hot tub, unless she's a listener to this podcast, she's never even going to know that she slighted you. Let's not talk about the <laughs> woman in the, in the hot tub because I, I honestly like that. That upset me in that moment, and I had I had forgotten about it until Jacob had brought it up today. <laughs> so let's just talk about all the people who say out there who say, "Oh, I, it was just a joke." Oh, I didn't mean, you know, it's not that I'm racist. I just wanted to, you know, it's just words. Let's just focus on the people who say something like that. Like, their words, their just the jokes, their slights, you know, that that has an impact. I would, I would also say that the election of Donald Trump has sort of, if we were making any kind of gradual progress forward, that has set us way back. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea of gradualism, if you can just elect a president who then emboldens a lot mm-hmm. of people who haven't made any forward progress mm-hmm. to come forward and recruit others, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, basi- we're losing ground right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, gradualism uh, a- a- allows for that. If you're not actually taking any action, if you're going to say, I'm not going to support Black Lives Matter because I'm not, a, you know, because that's just outside of my, the realm of my, my sphere of, of experience... Um, that's for them to do. It's not for me to do. I, I'm not going to support that because I'm not a black person, and they—that's on their. You know what I'm saying? It's yes. it's in their it's in their realm to take care of. That's gradualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, pushing the, the 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 way to solve this problem is to get all of the white people who don't agree <laughs> with what is happening to join with all the people of color who are experiencing these problems, so that. We, the people who disagree with this, become the majority. The only way for us to become the majority is to all join together and actually be working towards the same goal of equality. And as long as white people who are literally the majority are allowed to just sit on the sidelines because they're not being affected by these problems or, or choose to allowed. do that. Yeah, right. They're making a choice. They're not being allowed to. They're choosing to do that. As long as they choose not to join into the fight for equality along with the people who are experiencing inequality, then we will not have the majority that we need to make this happen. I honestly think that it it really starts with just you, like me. It starts at the personal level. Like it, It takes a lot of personal strength to say, yeah, what I said, what I thought, how I thought back then was wrong. I think I want to think about things in a different way. It takes a lot of strength to change that aspect of yourself. And I think that the more people who are brave enough to kind of take that on 
and to move forward admitting, yeah, I made mistakes before. I, I made some big mistakes before. I was really, I really thought about things in a really hateful and wrong way. You know, like you've really just got to like, it really starts with the, at the personal level. If you can admit that, oh, I was wrong. I was mistaken. I was not great, you know, then you can move on and then you can like I think that's the first step. I don't know. I'm a little I'm a little buzz right now, but I'm, I'm trying wow. to just like hey, right now I just read it. I'm sorry. I'm just, just trying to bring out or... you can edit that part out. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to bring yeah. out that like if if you can start there, then you can move forward. Like there there are some big things that can happen to your world view when you just admit, Oh, I was wrong about that. I, I mean I want and I'm sorry, Karen, I do want to talk about the woman in the hot tub because this was my <laughs> anecdote. I know, I know this is a start. Okay. But the reason I'm bringing this up, and I'm, I you know, I want to respond to what, what James has said. That lady doesn't listen to our podcast. I don't know who she is. I don't care who she is. She's not going to learn anything from this. But I learned something from that. And that was what I was trying to say, which is that she said something that in her mind was a positive thing, but was not, was a let's say microaggression it was a racist thing it made someone feel uncomfortable and the thing I took from that was an awareness of how things I say and I know I have said things that have made women uncomfortable and people of color uncomfortable not personally not trying to wear them down or make them feel bad mm -hmm. but that there is a possibility that this is an example of the possibility where you could say something that in your heart feels okay but is actually not the right thing to say and if there's something that someone can take from that story, it's not that that lady needs to learn a lesson because I don't know who she is and I don't care, but that I could learn a lesson from this, that the people listening to this podcast, if they're in a hot tub with a person of color <laughs> whose skin that they think looks nice, to just be like, hmm, no, I'll, I'll, say, I'll think of another way to, to break the ice. Or but, even taking that a step further, um, you could be a person who hasn't maybe committed any infractions yourself and can learn from that story that if you're in a position of power that you can still recognize someone else's experience and still learn from it and you don't necessarily have to be making any um, apologies and saying I've made mistakes in the past because maybe you haven't I don't know you could be oh you've made mistakes in the past well we all me, have yeah but I mean, <laughs> you can someone who you know can't actually pinpoint anything and thinks like you know yeah maybe I haven't had that but you can still now take from that story that someone else has done that and maybe you if you experience it you can be in a position of power to point it out to that person mm -hmm. you can then take that step like oh i now recognize this other person who has a similar power level as me is making a comment or some sort of action towards someone else who has a lower power dynamic and i can step in and say this isn't cool what what change can i make then allyship yeah, that, I mean, that was the point of my example. I don't care about that lady. The point of the example <laughs> was that I had reached a point where I was aware that what she was saying I think you might have said something at that moment, too. I, yeah, I can't I, remember I, what our was, conversation was. We were like, we definitely, hey, we're good. We peace. definitely moved to a different pool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think you had said something because I was just like, But the point sucks. of this was not that lady, I don't care about her, but that there you can build awareness to... What, honestly, what is a inappropriate thing to say to someone to break the ice, regardless of whether she's a good person or bad person, I don't care. This is the advice I have and, uh, to other white people is listen to that story and take from it that 
there are comments that you can make as a white person that may feel okay, that may seem okay to you, but take a second thought because you need to listen to other people in terms of what makes them feel comfortable. And we've been talking a lot about white people for a reason, because this is a podcast about interracial relationships. Yeah. But any power dynamic, you know, yeah. I, I identify as straight. I mm-hmm. could still learn more about um, someone who is bisexual or gay or trans mm-hmm. and use my, you know, sort of awareness about my personal issues and recognize their experiences. Like, there are many, many, many <laughs> different power <laughs> dynamics. And we, you know, it's not about for lack of a better term, picking on white privilege. It's mm-hmm. all privilege can yeah. be checked and recognized. As a white, straight, cisgendered male, I'm in the privileged position to only learn when I feel like it. So <laughs> feel free to to pick up some, some knowledge from other people because you're in the, the easiest position to do so. I'm going to plug something. Yeah, what are you going to plug? Um, a couple of things. So there's a podcast, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the host. It's called Yo, Is This Racist? Oh, yeah, yeah. Have we talked about that before? I think so, but it's um, a great podcast. It's a good podcast. They get a question in, person calls in and says, this happened, is it racist? And then they talk about it. Um, another one I would like to recommend is The Nod, which is sort of a historical podcast. Um, the most recent one that I listened to was... I wish I could remember the person that she was um, profiling, but basically it's a historical podcast. She had found this picture of a woman from, I think, the 30s. Um, and I can't remember the name of the woman because I can't remember anything right now. Mm. Uh, but basically there was a review. It was like uh, 100... It was a drag review. Uh, 100 women and one... No, 100 men and one woman. And, you were, and the challenge to the audience was to figure out who the woman was. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and they were all in drag, and then a baritone would come out and start singing. And, you know, it was like that kind of 1930s review with the big costumes. The baritone was the woman. Hmm. Um, and then she profiled this woman. It was really fascinating. That sounds fun. So hmm. I, I'd recommend that. I was going to plug something you shared with me, Mom. Uh, Mixed Race in America, which is by the Washington podcast by the Washington Post. Oh, yeah, it's like a five, five And episode. they're all like 10 minutes long. They're very short. Um, but it is a short series of podcasts about different people's experiences being of a mixed race heritage in America. And they're just, they're all very short, moving stories. They're very interesting. It's all plug. Hey, phone people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm texting BRB. So, Nicole, what would you like to plug? I have a couple plugs. Um, yeah. One was briefly mentioned earlier. Um, I think probably everyone in the world has seen it, but if you, for some reason, haven't, or even if you had, watch it again. Get Out is yeah, yeah, yeah. a we watched great it for this podcast. movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's a really, really, um, especially if you just rewatch it, um, good way to talk about something that's become a very charged and almost mocked a term, but microaggressions, mm-hmm. like recognizing subtle, mm-hmm. <laughs> different interactions in power dynamics mm-hmm. um, around race. Great movie for that. Um, another one that uh, I was reminded of when Karen was talking about generational mm-hmm. issues um, around privilege is uh, the stand-up special on Netflix by uh, Hassan Minaj. Oh, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Homecoming King. Brought me to tears. Yeah, excellent. It's funny. Confirm. It's, you know, moving. It's, I think, worth the watch if you've got the time. Very good. Make yes. the time. And after you watch Get Out, listen to our podcast about Get Out. <laughs> Uh, let's move over to the guests. Karen, do you have anything you'd like to plug this episode? Um, 
Nothing that I can think of at the moment. I never think to stuff my plug bag. How about the O.J. Simpson here. thing you were talking about oh, just the Netflix moments ago? Program. What was it called? It's not a Netflix program, but uh, oh, I thought it was a Netflix show. No. Oh, it was a true crime story. American, American crime there, story. There was the the Ryan Murphy one. The That's the American one. crime story. Yeah, American and then there crime was story. also uh, ESPN or HBO yeah. or somebody mm-hmm. I believe did a did a more formal documentary about it. Mm-hmm. Oh. um... There, I went to this one training recently, um, this one woman who used to be a psychologist and who now gives lectures um, about microaggressions and about what you can do in your own sphere to kind of move past that. I think her, I've got her business card in my wallet, but it's like, <laughs> uh, it's called like Crossing Cultures or something. She, she just does a really good job at like... Find her name and we'll come back um, to you. Her name is Caprice Hollins, Dr. Caprice uh. Hollins. And she's just, um, she, she's, uh, Cultures Connecting, Dr. Caprice Hollins, she's a, uh, she's a doctor in psychology, and she just real she gives lectures to people as young as middle schoolers, all the way up to a room full of lawyers at K&L Gates. <laughs> cool. um, but she's just, she just really does a good job at, like, driving it home, how important it is to come to Make yourself brave enough to admit, yeah, I've committed some microaggressions, and yeah, what can I do about it? You know, it, it's it, she. She does a really good job. So, um, cultures connecting is her is her business, and she's booked all the way till like early, like the first quarter of next year. But if you can afford her services, um, cultures connecting addresses race relations in the twenty first century, and she's phenomenal. Um, I will also just plug Social Justice Fund again because uh, I I loved my volunteering. Um, I did half a year of volunteering with Social Justice Fund about the, um, I guess, race and gender uh, intersection in society and the injustices that come from there. And um, I'm I'm going to be speaking at their next thing just as my talking about my experiences with Social Justice Fund. So. Um, if what does Social Justice Fund do? It is a nonprofit, and what they do is they raise money that is awarded to um, community-led organizations that, like, on the ground fight the fight of of um, racial injustice. So it's it's people in the community who have decided we want to form an organization, a nonprofit. We have jobs we've got families we've got everything else going on in our lives but we also are part of this organization where we strive to in one way or another benefit um, communities that are the most directly impacted by negative social policies so um, social justice fund is awesome if you have the time to commit to a six-month volunteering and you uh, live in the area. Commitment, and you live in the area, then you should totally go for it. Um, you learn how to how to uh, read grant proposals. You learn how to assess grant proposals. It's a lot of looking at financial documents, like more than you, <laughs> more than you thought. You know, I I learned I had to learn how to look at um, financial documents from all sorts of nonprofit organizations and assess whether they were uh, deserving of the money that I was raising from this program. So. I don't know. It's kind of neat. Social Justice Fund is great. I've got a T-shirt of theirs, cool. uh, and uh, they're they're really cool. James, do you want to plug anything? Uh, I really thought I was going to have something good by the time it got around to me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to, but you're certainly welcome to. My uh, let's see. My my plug would be to uh, support the ACLU. 
The, yeah. Uh, yes. yeah. Absolutely. It ties it into loving. Um, that's love a good reminder of the very, very important work those people do. They are under fire uh, a lot these days, both oh, from yeah. the right and the left. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think anybody who believes that rights are for everybody should, should support the work that they do. Yeah. I second that. A really easy way to do it is if you have an Amazon account, you can do their smile.amazon.com mm-hmm. where part of your purchases get, you know, a percentage of them get donated to a charity. Pick the ACLU. That's wonderful. I didn't even know that that, that Amazon had that kind of a program. Oh, yeah. It's very cool. And Karen and I have both volunteered for the ACLU a, a handful of times, as has my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, they could always use people to hand out flyers and stuff so it's an easy way to be involved at least in seattle it's a very easy way to do it they're always looking for people oh maybe i should plug the filipino lawyers of washington i love my flow family i should also plug the um asian bar association of washington too they do a lot of great work both flow and abaw um, have put in a lot of efforts in order to award law students with scholarships that will help them to afford their study aids to afford their very expensive law school books. I rented all of mine because I could not afford a 200 book for my life. You know, I could not do that. And so um, just to, I guess just a plug in general for the minority bar associations out there, whether it's Q Law, whether it's, you know, whatever. The minority bar associations do a lot of good work in order to bring up uh, students who might have a disadvantage in their successes as an attorney or whatever in their career. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about the cocktail, Mom? Sure. It was very delicious. <laughs> uh, What's it I, called? It's called Loving. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a lot of trouble coming up with an idea for it because, you know, these two movies. It was easy with horror movies. It's not so easy with these movies because yeah. it's like, what is the A little heavier topics. <laughs> right. I couldn't make an interracial drink because mm-hmm. that sounded a little... So I just, I just picked Loving. And then I wasn't sure what the flavor should be, and I asked you guys what mm-hmm. flavors you guys like. And then, for whatever reason, I decided to try a, a molecular gastronomy uh, technique that I had not been able to sort of work out it was in good. season I liked one. It. Yeah. So what it is, is it's um, a glass of Prosecco with some uh, vaguely heart-shaped uh, spheres of... I would um, just say heart shaped. Well, <laughs> heart nobody knows like the human heart. <laughs> yeah, uh, pomegranate juice, peach cranberry juice, and some dry curacao. So that goes. There's the pictures will be. It makes a very pretty drink. Mm-hmm. True. I really enjoyed making it Beautiful. because it was just very pretty to look at and tasty. And yeah, pretty tasty. Cool. So now we need to talk about the movies. For yeah. The next what are we doing next episode? Next episode, um, I'm. I don't know how this is going to work out, but we were watching a movie uh, from, uh, it's from the 30s, I believe. (gasps) It's called Gabriel Over the White House. More 30s. Uh, The theme of our next episode is authoritarian propaganda, basically. Uh, And Gabriel Over the White House, this just crazy beans guy gets elected president, um, (sighs) and we'll see how that goes. And that's, we're going to watch that with Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, I was hoping it would be, um, uh, what's the one with Tim Robbins? <laughs> no, we are going to watch that. Yes. But that's Wait, from what's the, the one with Tim, Tim Robbins? Um, um, what is the name of that? Bob Roberts. Bob Roberts, yeah. um, Have you seen that, Karen? I haven't, but I've heard oh, of it. Oh, it's so good. Uh, Charlie Wilson's War is uh, pretty good, too. Yeah. With 
Thomas Hanks. Thomas Hanks. <laughs> I don't know if I love Thomas him. Hanks engine. Yeah, that. Thomas the Tanks engine. <laughs> um, well, great. I do we. Are we going to have a guest during the next episode? Uh, PVD? We are supposed to have a guest, but I'm not going to promise that we're going to have a guest. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Um, well, I want to say thank you to our two guests, Karen and James. Thank you, James. Thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs> this is our longest episode. Oh, by time. far. It's been a great conversation. <laughs> I, I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, me it was too. great. It's been wonderful. I would like to have you back, actually. Oh, thank you. I'd love to be back. Let's do so, it. All right. Yeah, thanks, thanks everyone for inviting me back. It's been a while since I've spoken to a microphone. How does it feel? Feels okay. Well, you're going to be doing it again next week on another <laughs> podcast. Sorry. There you go. You oh, yeah. Go listen to Third Act Saviors. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be on Third Act yeah. Saviors. Yeah. We've got... Two of our biggest fans here. Yeah, I, I thought actually I was confused about which podcast this was, so I had a hell of a third act pitch for <laughs> James, have you been on Third Act Saviors? Not yet. I have not. You've got to have I've, James I've on oh, yeah. Third Act Saviors. We do have to have James on. And Nicole, for that matter. We've got to have you hey. both on. Very excited you, about it. You've got Deb on. Mm-hmm. And I have suggested that we do a, a crossover. A crossover. <laughs> a million people on <laughs> That'd be great. We had Mike on here at and decades, and we had Dan- oh, we did have Daniel. Yeah, they were both on. Yes, that's true. But yeah, thanks. Thank you to both of you. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Jacob. You're welcome. Thank you, world. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> yeah, do we have a, like a sign off? Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. <laughs> We'd probably like people to come back. <laughs> Sorry. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye all.